You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. So if you are sending your kids over to Children's Church, you can let them go to the back of the room now, up to second grade, and they'll be led to their classes to continue worshiping. We are going to be in Colossians chapter 4 together. Colossians chapter 4, we're going to, Lord willing, look at verses 2 through 6. So just as we normally do, I'll read the text out loud if you'd follow along, and then we will ask the Lord for some help. So Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who comes and leads us into all the truth. We need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Please do what only you can do. Please speak to us now through your word, by your spirit, make use of, of my voice as an instrument. Lord, please do what only you can do. Change our hearts this morning. Make us more like Jesus. Honor yourself and glorify yourself through our time in your word. Let us not leave unchanged. Please, God, we plead with you. For your name's sake, let us not leave unchanged. We ask you for it and trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are talking about prayer. You've never heard a sermon on prayer before, have you? Man, if you've spent 10 minutes in church, you've been, you've been preached to about prayer. Uh, I hope that we're not seeking to say anything new, really, this morning. Uh, the Bible has said what it says about prayer. Uh, it's a mysterious thing and a powerful thing and, and a healing thing, an effective thing, but not altogether an understood thing. And, and that's for good reason. It's because it is mysterious. So uh, I, I just want to say from the outset, before I seek to preach a faithful sermon on prayer, that I am not going to attempt to unlock some kind of hidden knowledge for you this morning. Uh, I am not going to try to uh, say something you've never heard before, uh, or even necessarily say it in a way you've never heard before. Um, I, I just want to offer to you what the scriptures say about prayer, and, um, and, and I think it'll be uh, good because it'll be from the Lord. So, uh, 
in seeking to do this, um, I, I definitely did not want to come before you and, and either uh, put in front of you some picture of prayer or, or call you to some experience with prayer that is not necessarily what God wants for every person. Uh, but I also didn't want to, in some way, in, in trying to move away from that, because a, a lot of teaching about prayer is very much based on the speaker or the preacher's experience in prayer and, and projecting that on you, that that should be your experience. And so wanting to, to move away from that, I also don't want to go in, in the opposite direction and delegitimize prayer as something that should be very powerful in your life. So, um, I, I wanted to start with a passage of Scripture where you begin to see the power of prayer working in the church, uh, and in order to do that, we would be in Acts chapter 4. So, I'm going to ask you to turn there to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And again, we're not trying to have some kind of new experience here or, or unlock some new knowledge. We just want to have what God says we have in Christ. So as we look back in Acts chapter 4, we see, again, this is the very beginnings of the church being formed, being brought together, being shaped by the Holy Spirit. And of course, prayer is an enormous part of what happened in the early church. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. As just a little bit of, um, of introduction to this passage, Peter and John had been brought before the Sanhedrin or the Jewish religious rulers of the day, and they had been commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus any longer after a man had been healed. And it was obvious to everyone in the city that this was done in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus' name, wanting to restrict them and forbid them from teaching in the name, they, they actually disgraced and harmed Peter and John. And Peter and John brought this testimony back to the church, and they began to rejoice that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. And after hearing this news together, they began to pray. So here's what happens, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, that is the church, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so they begin to pray all together, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. 
And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, again, I, I don't want to say to you that our experience will feel or look exactly like theirs. But I, I want you to, just for a moment, if you would, put yourself in their place, because that's always what we're trying to do when we want to understand the Scriptures. Put ourselves in the place of the readers, of those who experienced what God was doing in that day, and then learn from it. Imagine that we're gathered together, and we're seeking to make Christ known. And we're being opposed, we're being persecuted, we're being restricted and commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. And yet God is working, God is glorifying Jesus, God is healing and moving in power and he's saving people. And we're praying, we're seeking God because we want to see God glorified and honored and we want his gospel to advance and his kingdom to grow in the world so that his name would be revered. And we pray, asking God to look upon the threats of those who oppose us and to grant us boldness, that we would speak the word with truth, with love, and that God would do what only God can do to stretch out his hand and to work with his power. And now I want you to imagine that the place in which we were praying began to shake don't think of this as a fable, as a fairy tale, a bedtime story. Imagine that you're there praying, and the place in which you're praying begins to shake in response to your prayer. Power, right? That's what the shaking was about. It, it, it was at least a demonstration from God that he was with them, that he was hearing them. But his, his response to them, the way he communicated with them to show them that he was listening, that he was answering, and that he was with them, was a demonstration of power by shaking the physical place in which they were praying. Shaking it. Which I imagine would have caused a bit of fear at the same time as amazement and wonder at God, don't you think? I mean, first century construction wasn't what it is now. The place could have come down. God shook the place. And it was a demonstration of power. When they prayed, God demonstrated his power. Now, again... I'm not suggesting that if we begin to pray in some way that we've never prayed before, that then the place we're praying will be shaken. That we'll have some kind of step-by-step uh, -step exact replica of experience that they had. That's, that's not what we're saying because God can do that or not do that. There's plenty of instances throughout the scriptures where people play, prayed with a correct heart and for things that God wanted and yet those places weren't shaken. 
But don't we want God's power? Don't we want to know that God is listening and to know that he's responding, that he's answering in his power? And whether or not he would give us some kind of sign like this to demonstrate out loud, undeniably, that he's there and that he's going to work in power, that we would still have faith that he is. And how? How can we have that faith? That God is working in power in response to our prayers. So here we are, Paul says, Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We're going to stop there and just try to really digest what it is that he's getting at because this isn't the first or the only time that this kind of language is used about prayer, this continuing steadfastly, which again, like we've seen in Colossians before about worship, about remembrance, about our attention towards Jesus, this continual, perpetual state of mind, continuing steadfastly, not giving up, not ceasing we have so many other verses, and I, I'm not going to list them all for you, but I'll point you to some. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says to pray without ceasing. That's the entire verse. Pray without ceasing, without stopping. Matthew 9 and Luke 10, Jesus says to pray earnestly. And, he, and he's speaking in terms of mission, in terms of disciple making. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters, laborers into the fields. Then in Luke 18, it says this, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And here's what he said about it. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus now is juxtaposing this unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God, yet by the persistence of the widow, he's willing to relent and give her her request. How much more will a righteous God who loves his children respond in accordance with his will to their requests? How much more? If even the world is willing to finally give in to relentless requests, how much more God? How much more? Infinitely more. Infinitely more. So then Jesus gives this almost difficult to accept picture of us coming to the Father, nagging him for those things that are in our hearts. God, please, please save my children. Please give me this, God. Please, God. Won't you save them, God? Hear my prayer. Hear my plea. Won't you give me this, God? For your name's sake, won't you save my children? 
How much more is God wanting and eager to give justice to his elect, his children, infinitely more? But there are reasons why we don't continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There are reasons why. And we could just throw it into a a big category that we just call failure, sinfulness or, or limitation or whatever, but I don't know how helpful that is. And, and I want to seek to be helpful. I, I believe the Lord would have us do that this morning. So I, I want to point out to you with complete honesty the two primary things that I believe have hindered me from being steadfast in prayer and being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Two things. And, and I, I believe that they'll resonate with you. The first thing, it's hard to come to God when I know I've sinned. It's hard to come to him when I know I've sinned because I feel unworthy. And I feel unworthy because I forget Christ. It's hard to come to God when we know we've sinned. The second thing, and this is, this is in a way different category than, than um, fear of rejection exactly, it's this, doing something in my own strength feels more effective than asking God to do something that only he can do in his strength, in his own time and in his own way. I feel more powerful than God. That if I can spend 10 minutes doing something that I can figure out, it'll feel more effective to me than if I go and spend 10 minutes asking God to do something I can't do. That's difficult. It's difficult to come to a place where we realize our effectiveness is ineffective. But the Bible gives clear answers to both of these barriers to continual steadfast prayer. It gives answers to both of these things. And I'm not going to try again to say everything that the Bible says about it, but I do want to give a picture of the primary things that the Bible says about it. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 in response to this first barrier that I feel unworthy to come to God because I know I've sinned and so I fear rejection from him or disappointment from him that would cause him to say no to me or to send me away. Hebrews chapter 10. So you're going to turn to the end, to, towards the end of the Bible and you're going to hit Hebrews. Pretty big book. Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he he who promised is faithful. 
Amen? So do you draw near to the throne of God based on your own merits, based on your own performance, your own faithfulness? You draw near by the blood of Christ, having been cleansed, been washed, been forgiven, been justified. God is bringing you near in Christ. And it's because of Christ that you can pray and not be rejected and not be turned away, scorned, hated. God is not disappointed in you because of your sins. He laid all of his disappointment on Christ when he suffered for us. There is no rejection in God's attitude toward you. God does not hate you, child of God. He loves you. Jesus died in your place. Jesus was rejected for your sake so that you could come close, so that you could come into the most holy place. Of course, that is a picture of the Jewish temple. There were outer courts where people could gather. Then there was the holy place where only the priests could gather to make their sacrifices and to worship God. And then there was the most holy place, a place where only the high priest could enter and only once a year to make a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Jesus entered that most holy place, made a sacrifice of his own self for all of our sins for all time, and by his blood we are cleansed and can actually enter into that most holy place where God is, where his spirit dwells. Those high priests, if they entered with the wrong attitude, with false motives, with sin in their hearts, they would be struck dead before God. But we come in with no fear because Jesus was struck dead for us. There is no fear in approaching God for the Christian because of Christ, not because of you. Remember that in every equation involving you and the Lord you are the variable. He's the constant. He will be faithful to his promises and his plans. He says, come near to me. You can come near. He'll be faithful. First Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You're righteous because of Christ's righteousness given to you, credited to you. God's ears are open to your prayers. The second barrier that we believe that we are, our actions can be more effective than waiting on God's actions, which may or may not fall in line with our plans and our desires John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. What is it to abide in Christ if it's not to come to him continually, steadfastly in prayer, asking him to do what only he can do? And when we live that way, when we abide in Christ in that way, 
he it is that bears much fruit because we know apart from him, we can do nothing. I fool myself all the time. And I'm sure you do too. It's a disease that we carry. We fool ourselves all the time into thinking that our activities and our efforts are doing something that we couldn't wait on God to do. And I think one day, probably about 30 seconds before I die, I'll finally have that figured out. So clearly the Lord has answered our fear and our pride so that we would understand how completely we're accepted by God through Christ and how completely powerless we are apart from him. So what's left but to just turn to the Lord in faith and ask him to teach us and grow us in prayer so that we would enjoy him more, so that we would gain more confidence in him and that we would bear more fruit for his glory. What's left to do? Easier said than done. As we pray, we're watchful in it. We're looking intently to see how God will answer so that we can submit to his will and pray him and and praise him. And we're thankful for his answers. We're thankful. We're to be watchful in it with thanksgiving because we're looking intently to see how God will answer. And when he answers, we know that he's good. Whether he says yes or no to our prayers is not, is not this estimation of him either accepting or rejecting us. We're thankful because God has accepted us in Christ. And so we can come and we can ask, ask whatever. And if it's according to God's will, you know that you will have it. But if it's not according to God's will, why would you want it? Isn't that the big question? When it comes to prayers that we call unanswered or that God says no and we're so confused and even discouraged or angry about, how could God say no to that? Well, if he did, then it means he didn't want it. It wasn't good. And if God says something isn't good, what is it in us that demands we must have it still? So we're, th- we're thankful. We pray with thanksgiving as we watch God say yes or no to us because we know what he's working out is his will for our lives. And it's always going to be good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Ultimately, I think the reason why we struggle to continue steadfastly to live in this continual mode of prayer, of attentiveness towards God, toward what he's doing, toward what only he can do, is the same reason we struggle to walk out any other command. We have our eyes on ourselves and not on God. That's just all it is. I know that when I'm prayerless, it's because I'm thinking so much about me what I fail to do or what I think I can do. And I'm not thinking about what God has already done and what only God can do. Which is 
I think, a, a very interesting thing and a very timely word from Paul coming off of everything that he has said about Jesus in this letter to the Colossians, how he has exalted Jesus, magnified Jesus. He's presented him as the creator, the sustainer, the only one we need for absolutely everything. He's presented as holy, as perfect, as powerful, as sovereign. Jesus is all we need. And here again, he says, always, always have your attention turned towards him. Always be speaking to him. Always be requesting him to do what only he can do. Because as we've established, he is himself. To turn to yourself, to look for these things, is a foolish thing in light of who Jesus is and the fact that he's available. You put me and Jesus up next to each other and go, okay, you desperately need something. Who are you going to turn to? My goodness, do not turn to me. I will fail you 100% of the time. 100% of the time. I will fail you. You will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Your children will fail you. Jesus will never, ever, ever fail you. He's worthy of our prayers, worthy of our dedication, worthy of our dependence. And that's what this is really about, understanding our dependence. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I think if we were fully aware of the majesty, the sovereignty, the power, the goodness, the faithfulness of the Lord at all times, and if we were fully aware of his eagerness to listen to us and to work through our prayers, we would truly never cease to pray. But here we are, we're limited, aren't we? I'm, I'm incredibly limited. So then, let's connect some dots here. If we know a greater awareness of Christ, his sovereignty, his majesty, his power, and his goodness would lead us to a, a real rightful, logical dependence on him continually and steadfastly, then if I'm not continually steadfast, the only answer is, I must not know Jesus like I need to. Because if I did, I would never stop praying. I would always know that my prayers are being heard and I would always know that Jesus, my great high priest, is listening and interceding for me so that God's will will come about in my life. What do we want if we don't want God's will for our lives? And to know that Jesus is our mediator, our intercessor, he is the power. He creates the possibility. I must not know Jesus like I need to. So then let's plead with the Holy Spirit that he would break us free from what hinders us, a limited understanding of our Savior, of his power, of his love for us. When we know Jesus more, we'll begin to more continually and steadfastly pray 
But prayer isn't just an end in itself, right? God has ordained prayer as a means of working in the world to accomplish his will. And here's where the mystery enters into the equation, doesn't it? That an all-powerful, sovereign God over the universe that he created can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, through whom, whoever he wants, that he's looking to us going, ask me, ask me. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. Ask me. Isn't that mysteriously, gloriously fun? That the God of the universe is going, come on, let's play. Let's do this. Let's get involved in this together. I'm inviting you into the table to sit and hear what I want to do and then ask me to do it and I'll do it. How great is that? That this God of the universe is saying, come on, ask me. I want to do it. And in some weird way, I even think sometimes that God in this, I don't know, it, it makes me start to bleed from my ears when I start trying to get too deep into it, but that God is almost waiting for us to ask. And as soon as we ask, he does it. He was going to do it. And that was his timing. He planned on it. And yet he's waiting. Ask me. It's a mystery. I'm not going to pretend to know how it works, but I know it's not an end in itself. It's a sanctifying thing for us and a joy for us and a comfort for us to come to God and ask him. And then he responds because we know God is working in our lives. And that's what we all want. We want to know that God is working in our lives because if he's not, it's all a waste. Amen. Amen. What is the point? Honestly, what are we all living for if God is not working in our lives? Then we're just dust. We're just dust under his feet. But if we can pray and because of Christ be accepted and heard and God will answer and work through our prayers to accomplish his will, then it all means something. It all means something. Every day of your life has meaning. Every interaction, every conversation, everything you put your hand to do means something if it means something for the glory of God. And he has ordained prayer as a means of working through our lives to accomplish his will. Paul gives some specific context to how he's even asking for these prayers to work effectively. He says this, Verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Paul is saying we, we want and we need a door to be opened so that the word could be preached to the Gentiles. We're asking you to pray and ask God to open that door. There's a door that's not yet open. Ask God to open it. Isn't that mysterious? As if God was waiting? Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to come into a relationship of co-laboring with him, partnership with him. I'm not going to do it until you ask me to do it. He could do it, amen? He can do whatever he wants. God doesn't need us for anything. He's not hindered by us. He's not handcuffed by our lack of prayer. Yet he waits for us. And I'm sure the Colossians prayed. 
God, please open a door for your word to declare the mystery of Christ. That Paul and his team would go forward and they would step through that door and the Gentiles would hear and believe, please God, open the door. And God opened the door. And many, many more people heard and believed. On prayer opening doors for the gospel, listen to this. Philippians 1, starting in verse 19, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, his imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Through your prayers, I will have that labor. Through your prayers, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, for fruitful labor. Through their prayers. 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says that they must help by their prayers. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray for us. Pray for us that our mouths would be opened and that we would boldly proclaim the gospel, the mystery of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray that the gospel would go forward, that the kingdom would advance. It matters if you pray or not. I don't know how or why, God has worked that into the Christian experience that it matters whether or not we pray. Not that God can't if we don't, but that he chooses to listen and respond to our prayers to accomplish his will. I don't know how or why, but he said so. He said so. Over and over again, you hear Paul requesting that they pray, that doors would be open, that mouths would be open, that the gospel would advance and be believed, that the mystery of the gospel would be understood, that Christ would be believed on, trusted. The prayers of believers, unnamed children of God, just like us, were having an effect on the outworking of God's will for Paul and the advancement of the gospel in the first century. We don't know their names. We're not talking about some special individuals with some particular gift for praying that God said, I'm putting this person in the world because when they pray, I'll listen. No, you're talking about thousands of people whose names we don't know. And when they prayed, doors were opened. When they prayed, mouths were opened. And the gospel advanced. People just like us. He asked them to pray for God to open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He uses that terminology intentionally. The mystery of Christ that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's asking them to pray and ask God 
Will you ask God on my behalf that the mystery of Christ would be made clear to people who don't know him so that they could understand and they could believe gospel clarity. This should be an ongoing prayer of ours that God would open doors for us to clearly speak the gospel. Clearly unfolding the mystery of Christ. Now listen, let me stop for a moment and, and just say this. I know that when you read something like unfolding the mystery of Christ, most of you think like, I haven't been to seminary. I'm not even all that faithful in coming to church every Sunday. I'm not sure that I'm equipped or capable or that God has really even necessarily called me to unfold the mystery of Christ. I'm just not that knowledgeable. I'm not that smart about Jesus. I love him. I know he died for me. I I know that apart from him, I'm lost. I'm dead in my sins and that only by him dying on the cross in my place can I be reconciled to God. But I'm not sure that I can unfold the mystery of Christ. But do you know that just in that sentence, I unfolded the mystery of Christ? That a holy God would come and die in your place for your sins from love so that you would be justified before that holy God, able to come into a relationship with him where he loves you, leads you, sanctifies you, and that your hope in that God is secure forever because it's based on what Jesus did, not based on what you've done. That is the mystery of Christ. It's unfolded. It's known by all of you who know Jesus. And to clearly enunciate the gospel, the mystery of Christ, to have gospel clarity is simply to just know the hope that is within you. To know that it's only Jesus. That it's by grace through faith in him that you're saved and by no work of your own, you can't boast. It's the grace of God, the gift of God. I think sometimes we make it too hard. We try to overcomplicate it. And sometimes for those who are bent towards a more intellectual version of their faith, they want to complicate it because then they feel like it elevates them to a place that other people haven't ascended to. I understand Christ like you don't because I know words like atonement. I know words like propitiation. That's 50 cents. That's a 50 cent word right there. We overcomplicate it sometimes and and we try to make it more difficult than it is. The Bible declares the mystery of Christ. We, We quote a guy all the time, a rotund prince of preachers named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's just so quotable. Listen to what he said. Christ said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Some preachers, however, put the food so high that neither sheep nor lambs can reach it. They seem to have read the text, feed my giraffes. <laughs> it is ridiculous, isn't it, Jacob? 
Gospel clarity comes from growing in our personal awareness of who Jesus is. Your personal awareness of who Jesus is. When we press in prayerfully to who Jesus is, we see the scriptures revealing how and why he has saved us, redeemed us, reconciled us, healed us, freed us, forgiven us, raised us from the dead. This is the gospel. This is gospel clarity. Now listen to this last thing he says. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, now he's talking about evangelism. He's talking about living your life in such a way that you reflect the character of Christ. And now listen to verse six. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, that your words would match the character of Christ, that you would speak with gospel clarity. Gracious, salty speech, flavored with godliness, flavored with gospel truth. The mystery of Christ unfolded through your character and through your words. This is who Jesus is, we say to the world. We say it through our love. We say it through our words. Making the best use of the time. I don't believe that when the Holy Spirit inspired these words to be written by the Apostle Paul, it was a coincidence that paired together, so intertwined together are these these encouragements, these commands to continually, steadfastly be in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, praying that the gospel would go forward, that the mystery of Christ would be unfolded, that gospel clarity would come through bold speech from Paul and his team, and that we also should walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, letting our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we can always give an answer to each person. Prayer and gospel clarity, evangelism, are inextricably linked. It is impossible to separate the two. If we don't pray, we cannot expect to see our lives used by God, making the best use of the time to see the mystery of Christ unfolded so that people would come to know him. If we're prayerless, then we don't know where the power for evangelism comes from. And if we're always in prayer, but yet unwilling to speak what we know about Christ, then we don't even know why we're praying. We don't even know the purpose for which God has ordained prayer. We pray so that we would partner together with God, so that we'd see him work in our own lives and in the world so that Jesus would be known. This is what prayer is about. Knowing Jesus. Submitting our lives to him. Here we are again. We started in a place where I I told you, I know that you've all heard dozens and dozens of sermons on prayer. And I hope it's not true that many of those, if not all of those sermons, have somehow included either some little tinge or just an absolute bucket full of guilt on you if you are not praying the way you, quote, should be praying. But let me tell you, 
in this context where the gospel is at the core, the identity of Christ and what he's accomplished is at the core of why we pray, then we have to understand the gospel is true for those who have struggled to pray. For those who have struggled to press in and even understand the power of it, the purpose of it. And so they haven't done it. But with God, mercies are new every morning. Every morning. Every time the sun rises, his mercy rises on you. God loves you. God welcomes you. He accepts you. He's eager to hear you pray. He's eager to hear me pray. As I stand here even now with this part of my heart broken and afraid that how can I say this when I know myself? Because the Bible says it, not me, for goodness sake. I'm not going to stand before you and say we should pray. We should give ourselves wholeheartedly, steadfastly to prayer so that we would be useful to God and his mission in the world. Not because I am knocking it out of the park and look at me. I'm nothing. I struggle like you struggle. I fail where you fail. I gave you my two primary reasons why I don't often pray. The gospel's true for me and you. Jesus died for us so that every day we could start over and we could pray and we could ask God to forgive us and help us, renew us, change us. It's true for you. So then the call here to continually be steadfast in prayer isn't, I mean, if that's something you've been doing. If not, don't be, don't be rolling up on God, faking it like, here I am to pray. Oh, now you want to pray because you heard a sermon? Now you think you can pray? Oh, everybody's praying. I better pray. Like all of a sudden now in a week, we're going to have elder-led prayer and we got a way bigger group because nobody wants to be the one who didn't show up after the prayer sermon. And God's going, oh, now you're at the throne of grace. Oh, now you have requests and supplications. Hey, listen. I don't have any more right to show up to elder-led prayer than you do. It's by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ that we've been washed clean, welcomed into the most holy place, heard and embraced by the Father. Not by our own merits. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's just a call to greater things in Christ. A call to greater things, greater service, greater faithfulness, as we become more and more aware of the richness and the beauty and the majesty of Christ, we'll want him more and more and we'll find him in prayer. It's just God ordained means. I don't know how it works. That's the end of the sermon. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.